The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Hey, it's good to be, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you are new, so excited that you've chosen to join us, uh, whether it's because you had Christmas Eve plans already and this was the next best thing in town, or because somebody begged you and dragged you, or because you have nothing better to do at five o'clock on a Sunday. Whatever the reason is that you are here, so glad that you're here. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being pastor here at Citizens. We would love to connect with you. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to fill out that blue connect card in your bulletin. You can drop it at our connect table in the lobby. We have a gift for you. We would love to just help you take your next step, whether it be towards Jesus or towards our church, whatever that looks like. Be sure to check the appropriate box on the right for whatever way that we can help you. And I hope that you, uh, yeah, are grateful that you chose to join us and to celebrate King Jesus together this evening. We're going to be in Luke 15. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a bulletin, it should be printed on there as well. If you need a Bible, there are some on the rows. We're going to be walking through about 20 verses in that passage in just a little bit. Uh, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to kind of set us up for where we're going this evening. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that 2,000 plus years ago, you took on flesh. You entered into humanity with all of its frustrations, all of its brokenness, all of its less than you-ness. And you willingly entered. And yet you lived not like us, you lived perfectly. You lived not like us, you lived dependent on the Father. You lived not like us, you lived the life that we could not. And yet you died the death that we deserved. And we love you, God. We're here to worship you. We're here to celebrate you. God, would you keep our eyes fixed on you this season? Not on the stuff, not on the gifts, not on the, the, all these other good things. Lord, would you keep our eyes on the best thing? Would you keep our eyes on you? Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I didn't realize uh, until Lindsay and I found out that we were expecting our firstborn child how much goes into the process of naming a kid. So if you've never had to do this before, let me explain to you. There are some unwritten, at least to me they're unwritten, maybe they're written somewhere. There are some unwritten rules about what you can or cannot name your child. So for instance, if you or your spouse have ever dated someone with a particular name, cross it out. It doesn't matter if it was for four years or for one date. It does not matter. Don't suggest it. <laughs> or maybe hypothetically your spouse didn't get along with someone in the fifth grade. That name is also off the table for what you can name your kid. And there's all these other questions, not just rules that come along with it. For instance, should we name our kid after a family member, a grandparent, a, a parent, an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, something like that? Or, or maybe should, we should name our kid after our favorite Star Wars character or after our favorite fictional TV show character. Maybe Anakin is a great name for a kid. Or maybe, I don't know, hypothetically for me, an obscure Old Testament king named Shishak because you just want to be able to call your kid Shaq. Do we name him after a Bible name? Maybe a less obscure name. My, my parents became Christians right before I was born. My mom actually got baptized when she was eight months pregnant with me, which if you can imagine uh, the person that had to, to dunk and bring back up an eight-month pregnant baby, I've been dunked twice because of that. You're welcome. Uh, and so because they were like gung-ho, excited about Jesus, they decided my name should be Timothy John. You don't get any more biblical than Timothy John except maybe like Jesus Paul, right? Like Jesus Paul Olson. <laughs> Timothy John, I had to be a pastor. It was like the one path that I had laid out before me. 
And then there's all these question marks that we ask to ourselves. We have to consider, okay, how's the first name going to go with the last name? So my last name is Olson, which Olson is not a great last name to pair with first names. You got to think about what are these going to say? I was doing some deep scholarly research, research this week, getting ready for this sermon, and I stumbled across some pretty unfortunate first name, last name combinations. I want to give you a few that I thought were funny. Feel free to laugh. The first is a guy by the name of Christopher Peter Bacon. AKA Crispy Bacon. <laughs> Another woman, her name was Eileen Wright. Not a lot of friends for her. Or here's an unfortunate one a woman named Helen married a guy with the last name of Back. Helen Back. After 10 years of marriage, still wondering if it's true. That was a bad joke. I knew that was not going to land. <laughs> Tried. Thank you. Here's the deal. There is power in names, right? There are implications that come when we name someone something. There is an identity that we attach to that person and label as that person. So when God shows up to his Old Testament people, the Israelites, thousands and thousands of years ago and declares names about the coming Messiah, those names have implications, what God says to his people, this passage we've been looking at over the past four weeks is this, Isaiah 9, verse 6, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Four names that, as we've seen over the past four weeks, directly address the very problems and longings of our soul in this Advent season. So we saw week one that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, that he makes peace between us and ourselves, that he has come to redeem all of the parts of our soul that are broken by sin, that he invites us to himself, that he intercedes for us, that he sympathizes with us. And then two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus is mighty God, that he's come not only to redeem the spiritual stuff of life, but also the physical stuff of life, our bodies, the creation around us that groans and longs and anticipates redemption. Then last week we talked about how Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he's come to give us peace between each other, that he's come to, to do away with oppression and injustice and inequality in our world and to bind us to himself and to one another. Hope has a name. His, his name is Jesus, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our Prince of Peace. And this week, our final week, Christmas gathering, I want to talk about Jesus as everlasting Father everlasting father. It's a great paradox of Christmas. A baby born in Bethlehem lives and dies and rises again as an invitation to all to receive him as an everlasting father. There's two promises wrapped up in this name of Jesus, one in the title itself of father and one in the adjective of everlasting. So he says that Isaiah says that he's the father. And what's happening here is Isaiah is not getting confused about the Trinity. Okay, so when he says that Jesus is the father, he's not getting confused about God the father, God the son, anything like that. We believe one God, three persons. But what he's doing is he's saying something about Jesus's relationship to us. In Christ's compassion and his tenderness towards us, Jesus would be like a good father to his people. He would be kind. He would be gentle. He would use just the right amount of discipline and force. He would be caring and affectionate, strong and protective. Everything we long for in a good father, Jesus will be and is to his children. But not just temporarily. 
not just occasionally, not with an expiration date. Jesus is not just a father. He is an everlasting father. He's an eternal father. Right after this, in Isaiah 9-7, as Garrison preached on last week, it says that Christ will reign forever, that this welcome that he offers all who trust in him would go on into eternity. This is our hope this Advent season, this season of waiting and longing that Christ, our everlasting father, has come and is coming again. Now here's the problem. For some of us, If we were to give hope a name, it would have nothing to do with being a father. Because the moment I say that Jesus has come to be an everlasting father, chances are you are instantly drawn to start thinking about your earthly one. Study after study after study that's taken place over the last 75 years has confirmed what we know to be true, that our relationships to our earthly fathers have drastic implications for our view of God. In fact, one study a couple of years ago showed that a person's relationship to their earthly dad is the single most important factor of whether or not that child adopts the faith of their parents. Why? Because what we do is we create a lens for the everlasting father based on the characteristics and actions of our earthly father. In other words, we view God based on how we view our dads, with all of the good and all of the bad and all of the ugly. Now, we can definitely take this too far. We can turn dads into kind of a scapegoat of our problems. I think it's kind of in vogue right now to point all of the problems in our life back to our earthly dads. We can ignore that what I've learned firsthand over the past two years, just how difficult it is to be a father. We can forget that there's a whole spectrum of good and bad, and that the majority of our dads fall somewhere in the middle with a little bit of both. But even still, I think there are specific ways our earthly fathers can succeed or fail that have implications for how we view the everlasting father. I want to give you some of those implications. So a few ways. For some of us, we grew up well aware of our dad's love for us. He told us all the time how proud he was, how delighted he was in us. You had a deep sense. Maybe even now you have a deep sense. My dad is proud of me. But for others of us, we live with what I would call a never satisfied father always pushing, always seems like he was dissatisfied with you, always seemed like you weren't doing enough. Like if you got B's, you were supposed to get A's. And if you got A's, you were supposed to get A pluses. And if you didn't make the team, you were supposed to make the team. And if you made the team, you were supposed to be a starter. And if you weren't a starter, you were supposed to be a captain. Just seemed like our souls craved for our dads to say one phrase we never heard, son or daughter, I'm proud of you. That's what we do is we take that and we carry it on to God. God also is not happy with me. God also is frustrated with me. God also is disappointed with me. He's always waiting for me to mess up so I can prove his judgment of me to be correct. For some of us, our dad was patient. He was kind. He was slow to anger. He was gentle. But for others of us, our dads were a ticking time bomb kind of dad. It seemed like he was always upset. He was always ready to explode. If he had a hard day at work, the smallest thing would set him off. And maybe for some of you, that turned abusive. Physically, emotionally, verbally. You learn to to live in fear and to cower from the next outburst or the next tirade. So we carry that ticking time bomb dad onto God. God too is ready to lash out. God too is ready to, to pour out his wrath and judgment and anger on me. 
For some, our dads, maybe they engaged with us emotionally. They asked us questions. They pressed in on our hearts. They cared about our feelings and our emotions. They asked us, how are you doing? What do you think about that? How is it going? And yet for others of us, we had an emotionally distant dad. He was physically around. He, he showed up. He was stable. He was consistent. He came to the games, the recitals, whatever, but he was never there emotionally, never hugged you, never said he loved you, never opened his heart to you. So again, we carry that on to God. God, too, is cold, and he's unavailable. The best he's got for us is kind of that slow golf clap. He doesn't delight in us. He doesn't take joy in us. He's there, but in like a half-hearted, aloof sort of way. And then for some of us, our, our dads are, are still present in our lives. We're excited to see them in just a few days and to spend time with them. And yet still, for some of us, we have an absent father. For some, he was, he was absent by choice. Maybe you were adopted or in a single mother home. Maybe he left when you were little. Or for others of us, maybe he was absent not by choice. Passed away when you were young. Maybe recently, and there's some pivotal moments when you really need him or you're going to need him, and he's not going to be there. So we carry that on to God. He also isn't or won't be there. He also will abandon me when I need him the most. And so what happens is we sit here on Christmas and we hear about Jesus, the hope of the world, descended into humanity 2,000 years ago to be an everlasting father for his people. Always present, always kind, always generous with his love and mercy, a caring defender for us. And there's a longing in our hearts because all we've experienced is a never satisfied, ticking time bomb, emotionally absent, never there dad. So we have a longing in our souls, a longing for the hope offered to us in Christmas, in the arrival of a Messiah, in Jesus, our everlasting father. But in order to see and receive this hope, we have to rewrite the lens. We have to look to scripture and to say, okay, if, if Jesus is an everlasting father and that's supposed to be good news, that's supposed to be hope, what is that mean? And I think there's no clearer picture of Jesus as an everlasting father than the one he gives of himself in Luke 15. That brings us to our passage. Luke chapter 15, let's, let's look at it briefly together. It's a pretty famous story within the church. Maybe you've heard it or a version of it before, but if not, I'll try to, I'll try to explain it as we go through. Luke, Luke chapter 15, this is the story of what's often called the prodigal son, but I want to show you that it's not really about who we make it about. Luke 15, we're going to start in verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So the son goes to the father, the younger son, and he says, give me what is mine. In other words, what he's asking for is his inheritance. He says, Father, I want everything that you have, but I don't want you. I want you to give me everything that you're going to give me when you die, but I want you to give it to me now. In other words, he's saying, hey, I like your stuff more than I like you. I want all the things you owe me, but I don't want you in my life. I want a life free from your rules, regulations, responsibilities. So the father gives it. He divides his property between his two sons. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this father gives the son his stuff. He takes it. He goes to a faraway land, and it says he squanders it with reckless living. We're not told everything that he does. We just know he blows the money as fast as he possibly can. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he goes away to a distant land. He squanders his wealth. He does whatever he wants. A famine comes. He's left with nothing. And so he hires himself out. I'm going to go work for this guy. He's tending to the pigs. And he's so down and out, destitute, alone and afraid that he says, I just want to eat what the pigs are eating. I'm so hungry. Just give me some of the pig slop. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, in other words, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he says, hey, this is trash. This is bad. Okay. Even my servants, even my dad's servants, they get to eat. I'm here wanting the food of the pigs. My dad's servants can eat. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to have this whole speech. Dad, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Hire me back. I don't need to be a son. I'll just be a servant. Just welcome me back into your house. I'll work, and then I can eat. He has this whole repentance speech planned out. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. Now notice what happens. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him, probably smelt him, and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. This is a completely countercultural, shocking scene in Jesus' day. Running was not what you did as an old man. Running was something for children. Running was something for juveniles, for, for young men. Running was not something for an old man. This was a disgraceful act, and yet the father is so drawn by compassion that he sees his son far off, and he runs to him. Before the son says anything, notice what he does. He embraces him and he kisses him out of the compassion of his heart. And then the son goes into the speech, verse 21. And the son said to him, just as he rehearsed, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worried, worthy to be called your son. But notice what the father does. He cuts him off there. He doesn't get to finish the speech. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The robe and the ring are a signal that this man is again in the family, that he is back to being a son. This ring would have been the ring of the family, would have been a a designated marker that he is back as a son for his father, not a servant, even better, back to his original status. Verse 23. It's even better. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So he says, you're a son and we're throwing a party. I thought you were dead. I thought you were, were gone. I thought I was never going to see you again, but you're back. And out of compassion and celebration, he says, put on this ring, put on this robe. You're in the family and we're throwing you a party. We're killing the fattened calf. The fattened calf is reserved for the best of the best types of parties. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate. But don't stop the story there. Got to deal with the older brother. Verse 25. Now his, oldest, no, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So notice the older son is doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's working the field. He's working for the dad. He's living out his responsibilities. The younger son squandering his wealth. He gets a party. Older son working in the field comes back. Here's some music. What's going on? Verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now, if you pause there and you have siblings, chances are there's a little piece of you that's like, okay, so now we're going to go party, right? Our our brother, who we thought was dead, who we thought was gone, who we thought was lost forever is back. My dad's throwing a party. Let's go celebrate. But notice what the older brother does. Verse 28, but he was angry 
and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Now notice, the father runs to the younger son and leaves the party for the older son. He entreats him, come in, come join the party. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat. He says, I've been following you for a long, long time and I didn't even get a young goat. He gets the fattened calf. I didn't even get a goat. I didn't even get a little party that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, not his brother, this son of yours, this guy who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, basically every time growing up that I heard this story preached or taught in church, and really every time I read it for myself, I put all of the emphasis on the younger brother. Maybe occasionally I heard a little bit about the older brother. This is not a bad emphasis, right? The whole storyline of the Bible is trying to show us that we as humans are guilty of being one of these two sons. If you read the Bible, that's the whole story of the Bible, that we are guilty of rebelling against God one way or the other. We are the prodigals in Jesus' story. We are spiritually the younger brother and the older brother. So for some of us, apart from God, we are the younger son, right? We want the things of God without God. We rebel and we run away from him. We try to run our own lives and we try to do our own thing. We, want, we end up beat up and beat down and destitute, lost among the pigs and our sin and our shame. We are what I would call outwardly rebellious. But for some of us, apart from God, we're the older brother. We also reject God, but instead of running away from him, we just do it in our pride and arrogance. We're stuck in what we think are our good works, our, our ticket to heaven, all of the good things we've done to earn his approval. We too, just like the younger brother, want the things of God without him. For we think that we're just fine without him. I did my job. I did the good things. I did the right things. We're maybe not outwardly rebellious. We're outwardly religious. We think I did everything I needed to do to earn God's approval. Or maybe, you, like me, see parts of yourself in both sons. But what I want to do tonight for the last little bit is I want to look past the sons and I want to look at the father. In case you missed it, the father is Jesus in the story. Jesus is being accused at the beginning of Luke 15 by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, these hypocrites of the day who tried to puff themselves up with their own self-righteousness. And they're mocking Jesus saying, why are you spending all of your time with what they call quote unquote sinners? He gets approached by older brothers accusing him of spending all of his time ministering to younger brothers. His response is to tell a story that shows his incredible heart, both for the people he's getting accused by and the people he's getting accused for. Jesus is, in Luke 15, the incredible, hard to fathom, running after and pursuing his kids type of father. Because here's what he does for us. See yourself in the story. I'm either a younger brother, outwardly rebellious, or I'm an older brother, outwardly religious. Either way, I'm trying to do something to make myself God. Either earn my way to God or run away from God. Either way, I don't deserve anything. Jesus in the story chases after both. He sees the younger brother, the rebellious, the the running away from him, and he runs to greet him. He throws his arms around the younger brother. He welcomes him home. He's not going to be a servant. He's in the family. Give me the ring. Give me the robe. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate because I thought my son was dead, and now he's alive. I thought he was lost, and now he's found. And then to the older son, he leaves the party, and he goes and he pleads with him, come celebrate. 
All that is mine is yours. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. This is our everlasting father. Listen, this is the message of Christmas. Luke 15 is a Christmas story. We don't have a baby in a manger, but we have a king coming after his people and a father coming to rescue and a God seeking out the lost. And that's what Christmas is about. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, sent on a rescue mission to chase after the prodigals. The non-religious, the outwardly rebellious younger brothers, those of us running around looking to everything and everyone except for God to satisfy us, being our own kings, being our own rulers, living life however we want in search of fulfillment and satisfaction and belonging and meaning. And Jesus Christ entered the world 2,000 years ago to save us. For the inwardly rebellious, the outwardly religious older brothers, those who think we earn right standing with God by how good we are, how religious we are, how often we go to church, how many good things we do to help others, who think God welcomes us in because of our merit and our track record. Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago to save us. And that is the good news of Christmas, that to both of those groups, to save us from our sin and ourselves, Jesus comes 2,000 years ago, as a baby in a manger, to live a perfect life that we cannot, and yet die the death that we deserved, and rise again three days later to welcome us as his children into his family. That's the message of Christmas. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And all who trust in him will spend eternity with him as his children. So Jesus pleads with us in his mercy and grace as a good father, come home to the party. Come home to the party. And what you find when you receive the invitation of Christ is the hope of Christmas, an everlasting father. That's the hope of Christmas. And this is what you need to hear. This is what you need to believe. For all who put their trust in Christ, Jesus is an everlasting father, not a never satisfied dad, not a dad who's always frustrated with you, not a dad who's always angry with you, not a dad who's never okay with you and it's never enough, but a dad who is satisfied with you, who declares over you because of the cross, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. He says that over you. He declares you welcome and forgiven and righteous. You receive an everlasting father, not a time bomb dad. An everlasting father who Exodus 34 says is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Who the Bible says mercy and grace are new every morning. Who's not sitting there with his heavenly arms crossed at you going, to, yeah, of course, when are you going to screw up so I can smite you down again? But he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Who loves us with a forgiveness we cannot even fathom. We receive an everlasting father, not an emotionally distant dad. Did you hear the good news of Zephaniah 3.17 that Jacob read over us, that God delights over you with gladness and rejoices over you with loud singing? Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you thought about God singing over you? Delighting in you. Celebrating you. He longs to throw his arms around you and welcome you home. And lastly, we receive an everlasting father, not an absent dad. A father who, according to Hebrews 13.5, will never leave you or never forsake you, according to Romans, that no one can snatch you out of his hand. This is what's offered to us. First John 3, 1 and 2, it's going to be on the screen. See what kind of father love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the love and the hope on offer to all who trust in Christ, that we are in the family, that we're sealed, that we're adopted, that we are welcomed forever. If you want to know why we make such a big deal over Christmas and Easter and all of these holidays in the church calendars, because they matter not just a little bit, but to everything, for everything. We're welcome. That's the offer of the everlasting Father. Here's, here's where I want to close. I want to close tonight with... A story. This is a story that a friend of mine told me a few years ago uh, about uh, his son that he adopted. So this guy uh, adopted a boy with his family. They had a few other kids. And before they adopted this son, he spent some time kind of in and out of the foster system. And, and a lot of foster families are great and they do good work. But there was one particular foster family he was in right before he was adopted by this man's family that just wasn't a great situation or scenario for him. And one of the things that happened in this foster family is that in order to kind of will the child towards obedience, that if he disobeyed one of the parents within a certain time span before they were going to go on a vacation or a trip, then he wasn't going to be allowed to go. It was one of the ways that they kind of pushed him, hey, you have to obey. If you don't obey within this time span, you're not going on vacation. You're not going on the trip. You're not coming with us wherever we are going. And so uh, they ended up adopting this boy. He officially was brought into their family. And about six months into being in their family, they uh, started planning a trip to Disney World. Now, if you've never planned a trip to Disney World, you know that it's very exciting and very expensive. (laughs) So the whole family's excited. This is not something you just do on a whim. You're not just like, hey, we're going to Disney World tomorrow. This takes months and months of planning. And so they, as a family, were so excited. And, and he started noticing in particular that his son was so excited to go to Disney World. He was, he's heard so much about it. He's, he's seen all these things. He's had friends that have gone. He's talked about it. And so they would, every night at the dinner table, they would sit down and he'd be like, what are we doing Disney? Is Disney today? Disney tomorrow? Like, when are we going to Disney? He was so excited. Fast forward to a few days before the trip, and he uh, disobeys against one of the rules, and he rebels against his mom, does something she says you shouldn't do, gets disciplined, all that kind of stuff. Honestly, he said he didn't really think twice about it. He was like, yeah, kids disobey sometimes. You discipline them. You kind of move on. And so he said a few days later, it's the day of the trip. And everyone's getting ready. Everyone's excited. Everyone's packing. They have to leave for the airport in about an hour, and he's going through, and he's checking on all of the kids, making sure they're getting packed up, and he goes to his son's room, He sees on the floor an empty suitcase, and the kid's just sitting on the bed playing. It's like, that's strange. Like, this kid's been the the most excited out of all of us. Like, what's up? And so he goes, and he sits down on the bed next to him, and he's talking to him like, hey, man, like, what's up? Like, Disney, it's very expensive. We're going to go. Like, what is going on? He says, he's not looking at me. He's just playing with his toy. It's like, all right, like, bud, like, what's going on? He's trying to get his attention, trying to get his attention. And he said, finally, the kid looks up at him. He's got tears in his eyes, and he's trying to choke it back. And he says, I, I'm not going, right? Look, I, I disobeyed, and if I disobey, I don't get to go. That's how this works. And the guy said he wrapped his arms around the boy. He said, hey, hey bud, look me in the eyes. He said, listen to me. I am your father, and you are my child. And what's mine is yours, and where we go as a family, you go. That's never going to change. He said it was, took him three minutes, and that suitcase was, was packed, and they were out the door. 
Listen, I don't, I don't know what your earthly dad did or didn't do. I don't know what he said or didn't say. I don't know what he spoke over you or didn't speak over you. I don't know what blessing or curse he pronounced over your existence or life. I don't know that if he was present all the time, emotionally, physically, in every way he should have been, or if he was never there from the get-go. I don't know. But I do know that there's an offer for you in Christmas of an everlasting father, of a father who is not absent, of a father who delights over you, of a father who will never leave you or forsake you, of a father who is not waiting in anger, but is abundantly patient and kind to his children. And that's the hope. That's the hope. The hope is that for all of us who are prodigals, rebellious and religious alike, we have a father who chases us and pursues us and calls us his own. And so the invitation for all of us is to receive, to receive the hope on offer for an everlasting father. Hope does have a name. So we're celebrating six days from now. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's the Prince of Peace. And he is the true everlasting father. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Luke chapter 15. God, thank you for the hope that is offered to us in the story of the prodigal sons, and the story of the prodigal father. God, thank you that though because of sin we find ourselves as one of the two sons, though because of sin we find ourselves as rebellious or religious, trying to run away from you or to, to earn our way towards you, God, that in the midst of all of that, you and your goodness pursue us and chase us down. And you declare over all who trust in you that you are our father and that we are your children and that everything that is yours is ours, and that that is never going to change. God, so I pray for those of us in the room who have never received your fatherly love, who have never responded to the good news of the gospel, who have never embraced your forgiveness, your love, your cleansing, your washing clean, your welcoming into the family, God, that they, this Christmas, would be a marked moment in their lives where they turn from their sin, they turn from their rebellion or their religiosity, and they run to you as their father. And for all of us in the room who have a whole number of dad scenarios and life situations, God, I pray that you would bring healing. You would root us in hope offered to us in an everlasting father. That you do not abandon your children. You are not harsh. You are not quick to anger. You are slow to anger. And you are abounding in steadfast love. God, would you root our souls this Christmas in that hope that you, according to your word, delight over your children with singing. And I pray for those of us like me with stubborn hearts, hard hearts, doubting hearts that don't want to believe that that's true, that want to believe that you're mad or you're frustrated, you're angry, your arms are crossed towards me as your constant state. God, would you break us? Would you push down our walls, God? And would you help us this Christmas believe and hope that that is true, that you delight in us? We need that. That is our hope. You are our hope. You are the wonderful counselor. You are the mighty God. You are the everlasting father. You are the prince of peace. You are our hope. Not carols, not gifts, not family, not friends, not turkey or ham or whatever else comes with the season. You are our hope. 
anchor our souls to you, Jesus. We need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.